This is David Wilson and welcome to episode 44 of On Another Track. Welcome to On Another Track with me, David Wilson, exploring people and places from around the world. A podcast series that takes you where you've never been and probably where you never want to go. On Another Track is talking to people we can't meet with face to face. We use remote video technology and software to see what they have to say. And then what we'll do is we'll make sure we'll let people know quite clearly where you can get tickets from, what time the event is and when it's going on till. What's it based around? Is it going to be kind of a, a theme of Christmas? Yeah, we've called it Christmas is Coming. So we're trying to mix it up. It represent Christmas in as many different guises as, as we can while trying to keep the kind of message of Christmas there. That's the voice of Nick Goodall, former director of music at Stonar School. Nick started learning the piano at the age of five, and at the age of 13, he wrote a number of pieces for the clarinet and piano. He went on to study music at Nottingham University and spent the rest of his working career mainly in education. But that didn't stop him writing over 40 songs, a musical, Music for Reviews plays and a large number of original choral music arrangements. His most famous being performed at Wigmore Hall in London. If you want a unique composition in a true English style, Nick is ready for his next assignment. My first question for Nick was, how would you describe himself to somebody you just met? I always just say I'm a musician, which is interesting because I spent most of my career as a teacher in schools. Um, and I always made no apology to people for saying I was a musician who taught, not a teacher who happened to teach music, because I saw myself that way round. And I think that was quite important. Actually, it's very important. I don't disagree with you, but also I think you undersell yourself actually a little bit because, in fact, you've got a diverse background. So how did you get started in music then? My whole family is very musical. My father played the piano. Uh, very well. And um, he was mainly a, a jazz and improviser. He, he played by ear, although he could read and he did like classical music enormously. I started playing the piano when I was five. Uh, my dad taught me. He, he, he gave me lessons. I pestered him because I have an older sister who's also uh, musical. And uh, he started teaching her the piano. And I kept saying, no, no, you've got to teach me too. So he did. Um, and after a year or so, he passed me on to a local teacher and uh, I carried on from there. So I started very young. I was going to say five is extremely young. But I mean, what was, well, if you can think back that far, because I can remember back probably till I was about three or four. But what inspired you about the piano? What was it? Was it because dad was playing it or was it a combination of things? It was very much, I think, because my father was playing it. I mean, I, I used to hear him all the time. He played a lot. And he used to go and play um, in pubs locally two or three nights a week, sometimes on his own, sometimes with a little band of two or three other musicians. Um, and I always used to hear him playing downstairs when I was a very young kid and shout requests. I remember very clearly from my bed upstairs shouting down saying, Dad, can you play this? Um, and he would play a tune for me. And he was always playing records all kinds of music it was there in the background to our lives and we were taken my sister and I to concerts and shows uh from about that age um I remember he would take us to London to the Ernest Reed concerts in the festival hall they would take us to quite a lot of Amdram things he had friends who were singers 
in the local um, operettas, musicals, and he'd often buy the records of the shows we were going to go and see. So we'd go and see My Fair Lady and he'd buy the record and my sister and I would learn all the songs and sing them in the car. So it was there as, as far back as I can remember. And I think that was really why I wanted to play the piano. I, I wanted to do what he could do. Amazing foundation when you think about it, because not everybody gets access to that amazing artistic input at a very young age, you know. So what was the first thing that you can remember? What was the first request you used to shout down at dad and say, can you play this? Well, I can remember very clearly. He used to play Dry Bones because he 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 worked at Aldermaston at the AWRE at the time. And he was the piano player for a, a singing group who sang sort of swing songs and swing numbers. And I remember very clearly him taking my sister and I to a Christmas party uh, when I was probably preschool, which they had for children. And he played the piano at that as well. And one of the things that his his swing singing group did was an arrangement of Dry Bones. And I loved it as a sort of four-year-old and used to shout down, Dad, play Dry Bones, um, which he did. Okay, you, you, you had that kind of metamorphosis then, growing from sort of being the wee boy to you know getting official sort of lessons on the piano. How did that go to start with? Well, I had to go to a teacher in a couple of villages away because I was brought up in a very small village by the Thames in Oxfordshire. And it entailed my mum picking me up from our very small primary school that only had 50-odd pupils on a lunchtime every Monday and driving me to my teacher. And I had my lesson at lunchtime. Um, and I'd miss lunch at school and come back in time for afternoon lessons. And we did that for a number of years until I went to secondary school. But I did start playing the violin as well while I was still at primary school. And I had to go into Reading, which was the nearest town to get lessons for that. There was nothing locally for us. Again, I pestered my parents. I, I, I was the one who wanted to do that. I kept saying, I want to learn the violin until eventually they, they found me a teacher. An incredible motivation from a young boy's point of view, though, isn't it? You know, you must have been inspired, not just by your dad, but, uh, you know, as you started to play the piano, did it widen your horizons in terms of what was available out there in terms of music? It did. And I think having an older sister who was musical helped because, of course, she was three, four years older than me. So that little bit further ahead, and she played the clarinet. So by the time I was, I don't know, eight, nine years old, when I started the violin, she would have been in her early teens, and she played in a local youth orchestra. She she went to a Saturday music school. They had regional music schools in, in Oxfordshire at the time, and she joined that. And so I was always being taken to concerts that she was taking part in, and I was too young, and I just wanted to be part of it, you know, and I said... The instrument I want to learn is the violin. I don't want to play the clarinet. And uh, it just seemed to me it was a much better instrument. You were playing all the time in the orchestra, whereas the clarinet player was sitting out counting rests for uh, uh, half the music. So I think having the older sister helped as well, because that was an inspiration. And it certainly made me want to learn an orchestral instrument. If you were sort of maybe talking to somebody young uh, like you were, you know, five or six years old, and they were interested in music and um, they wanted to get started... Would you start them on the piano or would you start them on the violin? Is it because they're two completely different ends of the spectrum, aren't they? I mean, they're in a you know an, in an orchestral environment, they're there, but there's two different approaches, I imagine. And I'm not experienced in actually playing an instrument. So is it how difficult is it to play a piano or how difficult is it to play a violin? Or they're both equally difficult? Um, well, you could play either. I mean, the thing about the piano, I, 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 of course, when I started playing, this would be in the 60s, there were no electric pianos. There were no keyboards. So it was a real piano or nothing. And so for a five-year-old, that is quite challenging because you've got very small hands. You can't reach the pedals. Um, I know because I've taught lots of younger children and 
you know, the, the, the keys themselves are physically a long way away from your fingers. So you can't scale a piano down. But nowadays, of course, with electric keyboards, you can. And so modern kids have got a much better advantage than I had. You could start at five quite easily on a, on a suitable size keyboard, which would be no problem. The violin, of course, you can always scale down. And so that's why you have all these prodigy violinists. You know, they've all started when they were two, three years old as soon as they're old enough to hold one, because you can have eighth size, quarter size, um, half size violins, and you can scale it up as you grow, you get a bigger instrument. It grows with you. Yeah. So both those instruments actually work for very young children. Uh, brass and wind instruments, it's much harder. You can't scale down a trumpet really at all. It's not the same thing. You can start children on flutes and clarinets quite young, but probably five would be pushing it. That's why most children that age are going to play either a sort of equivalent child's instrument or something which you can scale down like a stringed instrument. Very interesting. I didn't know that. And it's uh, an insight into it. You, you did mention something actually quite interesting I picked up on because I love um, what was happening in the 60s with a lot of the bands. You know, yeah. They didn't have a piano effectively. I mean, one of the groups that I always remember did play a piano was during the pacemakers. They always had that in their kind of repertoire. Yeah, yeah. But a lot of the a lot of the groups moved over to the organ. Um, you know, so you had the animals and you had um a, a lot of the kind of the beat bands just starting kind of 62, 63, 64. What's the history behind that? Do you know anything about the, how that evolved and then how we got the electronic pianos? Do you know anything about the background to that? The the organ was the first the first kind of electronic keyboard and that's why it was really favoured by those bands because A you could amplify it. So if you've got amplified guitars and drum kits and stuff on stage, having an acoustic piano is is going to be drowned out. It's not going to be ideal. Although there are plenty of people that did play piano, you know, the sort of Jerry Lee Lewis's of this world who, who were pianists. The organ, when it came along, the electric organ, I think that the fact that it was a different sound, it, it had a, a different kind of property to it than the piano, it really appealed to those 60s bands who were generally quite experimental anyway. And did you have any firm favourites in that period of time? Because I know you were influenced by jazz, but what about what was young Nick getting into in the 60s? In the 60s, I, I, I personally wasn't. My sister was very into the Beatles. She had records and, and other bands of that type. Um, but for me, it was very much a 70s thing, the, the pop revolution. I came to it quite late, really. And when I did, I took up the bass guitar, which is an instrument I still play, the age of, what, 14, something like that, which... I self-taught. Um, it's an instrument which you can teach yourself if you've got the musical ability, which I had by then. And I was listening to everything, all the chart stuff, um, all the all the music of that era, rather than the probably the sixties, when I was only primary aged and wasn't as aware of a lot of it as, as my older sister was. Absolutely. So who would be in your biggest influences? And again, I didn't even know you played the bass guitar. I mean, how, how, how long does the repertoire get? I'm really intrigued by this. But yeah, who was your kind of biggest influences, do you think, uh, in the 70s? Well, in those very early days, I mean, we're talking about 74, 75. This is pre-punk. So, you know, you're, you're in the glam rock era. You're very much in the T-Rex um, status quo type era. And they were the sort of bands that everybody was imitating, and we all wanted to play. They were all guitar bands. That was partly why I went for the bass, because the piano wasn't really relevant to those bands at all. And then, of course, as the 70s progressed, I got very into the prog rock groups. I was massively into Pink Floyd and Yes and those sorts of bands by the late 70s, which did have amazing keyboard players. You know, the Rick Wakemans of this world and 
people like that. It was a huge hero of mine. So that was the kind of music which I took with me to university, you know, my 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 later teens and into my early 20s. It was it was a lot of those prog rock bands. The punk revolution passed me by, really. It wasn't something that I was particularly into at all. Totally agree. I mean, punk rock, it kind of passed me by as well. You know, I kind of very much a bit like you. My mum was into the 60s music. You know, it was the one generation ahead of me. So I was bringing out her sort of 45 singles and playing them on the radiogram. And I loved it, you know, absolutely loved it. Okay, you kind of intimated there that, you know, you were a bass player, you got influenced, then you were off to university. Where did Nick go to university? Well, I went to Nottingham University to, to read music. And what's interesting is I never wanted to do anything else. I mean, even at primary school, I remember, you know, people saying, what do you want to do when you grow up? And I always said music. I, From the age of probably nine or ten, I was never going to do anything else. So I went right through secondary school, did my A-levels, applied, got in and went to Nottingham where I did my first degree. And then I went on to King's College London to do a master's degree after that. So I was sort of five years at uni altogether just out of interest uh, you know if somebody was looking to go into the business of music and music is a broad range of things it, you know, it goes right from what we're doing today talking on the radio talking about music but then going all the way down to playing an instrument and composing and there's a whole different range of things in there if somebody was looking for a career in music you know and they want to set themselves up correctly when they're at school you know at secondary school mm. what's the sort of subjects that you should be thinking of of taking not you know sort of in i suppose in a levels uh, and and what would you suggest you know kind of other things that they should be you know putting into that bag of tools so to speak to get them ready i think you need to be as broad as you can be um, so it doesn't really matter what subjects you choose. It, it, it could be languages, it could be sciences, it could be PE, if, if that's your thing, if sports your thing, it doesn't matter. So long as you've got enough time to do the music, because the one thing I learned from my teaching career is that nowadays the kids, a lot of them don't have enough time to put into what you need to do to, to get anything out of music. You can't do it shortcutting. It is just the hard grind of practicing and rehearsing and developing your skills. For me, the one thing I would say to them is you've got to love doing it, of course, but make sure you give yourself the time to do it. If you try and do everything, if you try and play cricket and rugby and then you, you know, you're part of the swimming squad. And if you're interested in dance, you go off and do ballet or whatever it is, you're not going to be putting that time into the music. You can't do it. It's just a little something you do on a Saturday afternoon. It, it won't be enough to get any good at it. So if you're serious, you need the time. Yeah, and that's a fair comment, actually, because you look at any sports people and what have you, it, it's dedication at the end of the day. It is. If you want to be right at the top of your sport, you, you have to say. It's not to say that you can't do music casually and play in pubs and, you know, things like your dad did and what have you. That's great. You know, if that fulfills your spirit and your soul, great, you know. But I think if you want to go anywhere, you've got to be dedicated, haven't you? Absolutely. And um, and the, in the end, you have to make choices, too. I mean, I, you know, I was quite sporty as a younger teenager. I kept being picked for all the teams. And I went to Saturday music school in Oxford for six years in secondary school. And all the matches were on Saturday mornings and I could never do them. And I used to get picked and they'd have a team meeting, at, you know, break time at school and say, here's the team sheet. And I'd go, I can't do it. It's a Saturday. And eventually I stopped being picked, obviously. And I stopped doing it because I couldn't do both um, at that stage. You had to make a choice. You know, you were either going to play football or you were going to go to the music school. There wasn't room for both of those things, unfortunately. Actually, that's a great segue to, OK, you finished in London. 
you got out of college or university with a degree and um, what did you do? Well, I, the one thing I swore to myself I wasn't going to do when I was at university was teach. Um, like everybody does music. I wanted to be a performer. I, that's what I still love doing the most. Um, I wanted to play. I wanted to write music. But there isn't a career path in that. You can't just suddenly say, I'm going to be a composer or I'm going to be a performer. You need to find a way to do it. After five years at university, I'd had enough of, of, of that. And I had a sort of year off and I was teaching in a Saturday school, a music school, um, to fund my way through my university and my postgraduate course. And I also had some private pupils. At the time in London, the Inner London Education Authority, as it was called back in the 80s, the ILEA, they would fund students to do a PGCE, to do a one-year teacher training course if you're a graduate, provided you'd lived in London for a minimum of three years, and I had. So I qualified for this. So they actually paid all the course fees and the grant. So unlike current students who are you know, struggling to, to have to raise the money, I was given the money to do a PGCE, and I thought it's a no-brainer. If I do another year, I'll get the qualification. I can then get paid as a proper teacher. I could always do it if I want to, but while I'm doing that, I'll think what I'm going to do next. And at the end of that one year PGCE, I had to do a probationary year in a school to get my full qualification. I thought, OK, I'll do that, too. I got a job in Redbridge, in, uh, in London Borough of Redbridge in Wanstead High School. And I did my probation year and passed it. I hated it. And I resigned at the end of the first year, still not knowing where I was going to go next with this. But thinking, no, teaching is not for me. I'm going to I am going to do something else. And then I got a lucky break because uh, out of the blue, I got a phone call. I went the, the following September. I went back. To, I had no proper job. I was still doing a bit of playing and a bit of teaching. But um, I went back as a supply teacher and I got a phone call out of the blue from my godmother, who was also a music teacher, to say um, there was a job in Oxford going. A friend of hers was a headmistress of a girls' school, private school in Oxford, and they needed somebody for a couple of terms I was at a loose end, would I go and do it? And I said, yeah. So I went down on a, on a Sunday morning and I met the head teacher in this school in Oxford. I never applied for the job. Um, we had a chat, as you could do in those days. And she said, yeah, fine, come in January. And the rest is history. I turned up in January, um, not having even applied for this job, not thinking I wanted to do teaching at all. When I got there, she said, well, we were only going to do it for two terms, but the person who's coming in September has let us down. So if you like us and we like you, you could have the job full time. And that's how I got the job. And I stayed at this school for six years in Oxford. And I loved it because I was back in my own territory again. Uh, Oxford's a fantastic city for music. I got to meet lots of really good people, did some great music there. And I really enjoyed the teaching job. And then I moved from there to Wiltshire to another teaching job. So um, I ended up Doing teaching, which is the one thing I vowed I would never do. <laughs> so funny. And it's a great story because, you know, what you're really saying there is that it's about serendipity. It's about being in the right place at the right time a lot of the time, isn't it? You know, you've got lots of options. Take them because you never know where they're going to lead you. That's the point, isn't Absolutely. it? Absolutely. Yeah. And I've said that to many people, you know, that that first job for me wasn't the right job. It, it was a huge 2000 strong comprehensive in London. It wasn't a school that was ever going to suit me personally but you know there were jobs out there that would suit me and I never even considered them I would have just given up completely on that route I think and it was funny as you were describing the the the, the school once and I was thinking of oh oh to serve with love you know about an inner 
city school in London, which is a tough place to be. Any inner city school is a tough place. It's challenging. Yeah. There's great opportunities and you learn a lot from it because you learn a lot about yourself, don't you? Absolutely. And it, I, I wouldn't have done it any other way. And I was very glad I did I did it in London because, as, as I said, apart from anything else, it told me what I didn't want to do, you know, and that that's as valuable as the things that you you, you think you do. So, yes, I'm glad I went there and I'm glad I had that experience. Uh, but I'm also glad I got the lucky break, which which took me down a completely different route. OK, so talking about the school in Oxford, what, what was the, the the flip side of the coin? What totally inspired you about where you were? You know, absolutely, it was it was your home territory. That's great. Great foundation to spring from. But what was it that really motivated you? And what did you create in that environment in six years that really inspired the staff and the pupils? Well, the one thing that I did right from the start, because I was a composer, I saw myself as a composer, and I'd been writing music right through. When I was in London, I wrote a musical that... Um, with a, a head of a head of drama at a school in, in Walthamstow that we put on. And I was writing other music as well when I had the chance. But when I got to Oxford, the one thing that I did have then was a lot more time and space. And I wrote quite a lot of music. Obviously for the school, there were lots of carols, other music that we were doing. And I think that's the one thing that I brought to the table that they hadn't had before was somebody who could write to order. We did a production of Twelfth Night at the school, I remember, and I wrote all the music for that. There's three songs in the play anyway, and I wrote other music, and I had about seven, six or six, it was a girls' school, six or seven girls playing in a little band throughout the whole show. And that was something that was very different and something that you could bring, you know, you bring your own personal skills and interests to. And I love the theatre. I love, I've always loved doing musicals and musical theatres so that was something else that we really worked on and developed in that school I think same time I was able to do music outside school too because a lot of the staff I had working for me were very very good as you'd expect in Oxford professional musicians who were instrumental teachers and they asked me to come and join them so I worked with a, a baroque group playing the harpsichord actually um, which is not an instrument I would normally play because the trumpet teacher had started this group and um, he, he was sure of a keyboard player. So I did a whole load of gigs with them. And I started writing a review with the singing teacher. We, we did as a, as a live show and then we did a recording up in London of it. So I had lots of opportunities opened up for me just by being in that city and in that environment. Interesting enough, I'd love to kind of uh, dive into the process of writing a musical and, and music and, and how to put something together that sounds cohesive, it sounds great to the ear and people really enjoy so is there some basics is it a bit like writing a book you've got to turn up every day and start or or is it more inspirational you get your input from different sources what what, what's the whole process you've always got to start with the words (laughs) uh well i do anyway that so so the first thing is to have a collaborator um because i'm i'm not someone who's ever going to be a wordsmith i'm not somebody who writes my own text so i'm setting other people's music uh, words to music uh, and this particular teacher, I, I didn't know well, but we were kind of put in touch with each other through a mutual friend. And um, she presented this script to me, first of all, just as songs, not as, not as uh, you know, the, the book for the, for the show. And I liked the look of it and said, yes, I'll do it because you do when you're 25. And I wrote two or three songs and we got together and she liked them. I played them through to her. And then she said, this is the, this is the way that the show's evolving. I'm working on it with the kids, which was good. So it kind of evolved through what they were doing in workshops not just her her sitting at a typewriter as was in those days she would then give me one song after another after another until eventually I think we had 12 numbers in that show there were six in each half I wrote an overture 
at the beginning and some other incidental music in the middle of it. And it was a sort of full-blown play with with songs, which is um, what we'd intended. And I got a small band together and for the performances, and then we we re-recorded it later. Yeah, this is just incredible. I love the the process you're talking about. Where where do you get your inspiration from and your ideas from, though? How does that metamorphosize itself into getting onto the page as as musical notes? That's an interesting one. People do it very differently. My cousin Howard, who's who's a much, much more famous musician than I am, uh, writes musicals and TV themes and things. He he always says to me, it's all fully formed in his head. He can just write it straight down on, on the page. I can't do that. I could never work that way. I do everything at the piano. I try out ideas. I improvise. I tinker around until I get something that I'm happy with. And then I do write it down in a very traditional way, even today on paper, so that I don't forget it. <laughs> um, and it's sort of fixed. And then you can nowadays go to a computer and you can fiddle with it from there. But yeah, I write at the keyboard and always have done. So it comes from a lot of improvisation, a lot of just fiddling with chords and melodic shapes and things like that. I, I haven't got it fully formed in my head at all. That, that's incredible. And it is a kind of an organic process for you, isn't it? It's kind of building upon layers. Yeah. But you know, you know what I'm thinking here? I think your dad was great that he exposed you to jazz when he did at a very young age because... And not having listened to some of your music, and you know, I apologize, I haven't, but you know, I imagine you go places sometimes where other people might not go and see how it works. Is that is that the kind of process sometimes? Absolutely. And the one thing my dad always said, he worked from chords. For him, music was very much harmony based. It was it was the chords that were the important thing, not so much the melody or even the rhythm necessarily. Whereas obviously other people, it's it's the other way around. They start with a tune and they work backwards to trying to put some chords to it. Uh, and if you're a piano player, I think you do work from chords because you're you're playing with two hands. You know, it's not a melodic instrument. It is a it is a harmony instrument. And so that's very much the way my compositions have always gone. I've tried to make the, the chords interesting, as you say, actually taking it in unexpected directions. I don't just sort of sit there and write the same old generic formula that uh, that people have been doing for donkey's years. I try and try and find something that you're not expecting. Halfway through listening to On Another Track with me, David Wilson, my guest this week is Nick Goodall. Next, I want to ask Nick a little bit about family and how they actually managed to end up in Oxfordshire. Well, both my parents are Londoners. My father came from South London, from Forest Hill. My mother came from Harrow. Uh, well, she was born in Barking, actually, so she's, she is actually a proper Cockney, but, um, but she was brought up in Harrow. And they met post-war and my father was drafted into the army in 1943 as an 18-year-old and he was in the Royal Signals and he went over to France on D-Day plus eight and he worked his way up all the way through France, Belgium and into Germany until 1946 when he was demobbed. So, And he played the piano all the way through and I've got some fabulous photographs of my father during the war as a 19-year-old um, sitting at a piano in a bar somewhere in Celle in Germany he was based in in near near Brussels for a while as well in Belgium. Incredible pedigree, eh? When you think about it, it's, it's yeah. something you couldn't invent these days, really, eh? <laughs> well, you couldn't. And uh, he he was well. He was he came from a very large family. He was one of five brothers, and his mother was one of twelve children. And their background was in Norfolk. They were a long established all agricultural labourers, <laughs> needless to say, or small holding farmers. 
um, and she moved to London in the First World War. So that was the sort of background of my father. My, my mother was an only child, just the opposite. And her mother was an only child and orphaned at the age of eight. Oh, so she had no sort of living relatives at all to speak of. Uh, all my family connections have come down my father's side. And they're all the musicians, interestingly. Although my mother loved music, but she and she played the piano as a, as a girl, little girl, but not to any degree. And her father, I do believe, who died very young, um, he sang in Amdram stuff. So he did operettas and musicals in the 30s locally. So he he did have a voice and was interested too. And I've still got a couple of his his scores here, actually, of music that were being passed down to me. Incredible, incredible story. My father's family is interesting because uh, although he was a musician and his one of his elder brothers who was killed in the war was a musician, and I'm I'm my middle name is is named after him. He was an excellent musician, apparently, and did a sort of lorry lee and went off in the 30s with a violin on his back to Hungary, of all places, walking and learned all this Hungarian gypsy music and play the piano and the violin. And my father was very fond of him. But sadly, he was he was killed in 1942. You know, I never met him. Yeah. But my dad's youngest brother, Jeff, who is still alive, my father died two years ago at 94. But um, his younger brother, Jeff, is still alive and his family were all musical and I think I mentioned Howard Goodall who's a composer of some notes now because he's written a lot of famous TV themes like um, Blackadder and QI and Vicar of Dibley and those sorts of things they're all by him wow so yeah a load of stage musicals where he he went to Oxford to do music and was at the same music school as me in Oxford for a while and my sister and his brother so there actually were four of us from the Goodall family in at this central music school for a while it's definitely in the family dna isn't it it is it is and a cousin of mine keith uh who's now retired but he was director of music at winchester school so you know he did music and my cousin joanna also went to the royal college of music so there's about four of us in the family who did music degrees and did you know were professional musicians and so if you get stuck in something you've got a good resource to call on eh? yeah <laughs> so we're, we're definitely a, a musical family from my father's side but if you go back a generation to his mother and father they weren't at all there is no music there at all so it's very strange it all came out in the generation before us and has been passed down i think to everybody in, in my family we've we've all played instruments well and i think you know, what you've been doing as well with your teaching side of things is trying to inspire young people at a very young age you know with music and i think it's exposure environment and just hearing that one tune that makes you dream or makes you visualize something you know or feel something that's the point isn't it yes absolutely yeah and i've loved it oh well that's the thing and it's love it, it, that's the thing it's got to come from the heart and soul isn't it for it to be really meaningful at the end of the day because you meet so many people that don't read or don't listen to music and hey, i totally respect that but a lot of the time i think you get inspired when you're very very young you've got to get them when they're young uh, you have the most important yeah. bit okay well, thanks for the family history because that was intriguing i love the idea about the guy that was doing the black adder theme and all that i mean just out of interest if somebody wanted to get into that line of work i mean you went down the teaching role you've done your composing but obviously your family member went in that other line of work is that is easier today to get into that line of work and do composing for that type of thing you know um tv programs musical scores for films that type of thing um short answer is no it's not easy um Howard, who I know very well, see all the time. In fact, I'm, I'm going to see him for Christmas this year. We talk a lot about this. And I mean, he he had a lucky break in a completely different way. I mean, his background, he went to public school 
as an organ scholar because he he played the organ and then from there he got into Oxford as an organ scholar and I think that was the route that everyone was expecting him to take so you'd probably you know do recordings get into church music maybe get yourself a post in a big important cathedral choir or something like that um, but in fact, the very first week he was at Oxford at Christchurch, the two people that he met were Richard Curtis and Rowan Atkinson, who were promoting, well, they were trying to recruit people for their um, their sort of Footlights review group. And he fitted in immediately and said, yeah, that's for me, but I'm a musician. I don't want to go on stage. And they said, great, we want someone to write songs and play the piano in the sketches. And he slotted in with those two from day one. So it, they were personal friends. Richard Curtis was his best man in his, for his first wedding, his first marriage. It's incredible, isn't it? That networking was already happening way back in the 70s. <laughs> the networking was there. And when they had their big break, which was not the nine o'clock news, I don't know if you remember that. Remember it well. Yes. Going back to the very late 70s, early 80s, Howard wrote all the songs. So you probably remember it was a sketch show. They had pastiche songs of the day um, on topical themes and they drafted him in quite early on to be the songwriter. And then they toured with it. And then he was a personal friend of Rowan's. So everything Rowan Atkinson did after that, including Blackadder, he was on board as the composer. Incredible. Yeah. He's done virtually everything. He even did the Olympics um, because that sketch for the London 2012 Olympics, which Rowan did his Chariots of Fire bit at the beginning, Howard actually did all the scoring for that and the musical direction. So there is no career route into that. <laughs> that just happened and he was in the right place at the right time, met the right people, fitted perfectly with what they were trying to do. He was then able to do what he wanted to do, which was to write stage musicals rather than just sketch show songs and party pieces and had big success with his first musical in the 80s which was called The Hired Man you know it's it's a lot of luck and of course it's interesting because I wanted to be a I wanted to do exactly that <laughs> what he's ended up doing yeah um and haven't I've done something quite different I have carried on writing music I'm still writing music but I'm not a well-known composer and I have never done anything commercial. Well, I mean, that's a great way of circling back to you now. So you, you did the school, you must have moved to a couple of different schools. When did you, where did you end up finally? And how did you get into the kind of composing and expanding that area of your business? I came to Wiltshire because after I'd been in Oxford, I got the job at Stoner School near Melksham. I wanted to go to a bigger school. I loved my school in Oxford, but it was quite a small school. It, only had, it had under 200 pupils. It was a boarding school. It was a girls' school. And at the time, Stoner was also a boarding girls' school, so it kind of fitted that profile. I thought, I'd, and I got the job. Um, and Stoner at the time was w well over five hundred students, so it was a lot bigger. Gave me more opportunities, and I carried on where I'd left off. Really, I wrote lots of music, and I, the, the one thing I'd been working on, one of my my sort of magnum opus, my more serious music, was a was a big piece for flute and piano, a, a flute sonata, which lasts about half an hour. And I got that premiered at the Wigmore Hall in London, which is, you know, like one of the big places that you go to do your recitals. And I got it recorded commercially, too. So it's available on CD. So that was a nice thing um, that was sort of going on in the background while I was doing my teaching. And I carried on writing music for the school, loads and loads of choral pieces, some theatre music again. But I have to say, over the years, as my career went on, I had less and less time to do it because teaching has changed quite fundamentally in the, the 30, 35 years that I was doing it. There are far more demands on your time now. And um, trying to write 
even just for pleasure, let alone for, you know, somebody's commission, um, it's quite difficult to find the time. Yeah, I totally agree with you because you're available all the time now. That's the thing with the communication, although yeah. it's really opened up the world to us in terms of music, composing, you know, there's apps and programs now that make that process so much easier in many ways. You're now available all the time and that's trying to divide that time. Out. You know, yeah. actually that's a good point to kind of maybe finish on is that if somebody was inspired to write some music, okay, what would you, as a composer, an experienced composer and teacher, what would you recommend that they do if they're young or older, but they've always wanted to write something, be it a, you know, a symphony, be it just a little kind of song? Where do you start in the process? I started by listening. I mean, I think you've got to listen to lots of music and you've got to be able to absorb a lot of different music, which has always been my thing. I, I mean, I play now in a big band. I've played in it for 20 years in Bath and... I love it. That's where I play bass. It's so different. You're improvising, you're playing swing music with 20 other musicians. It's, then I go from that to playing the piano with an opera group or we'll be working with Trowbridge Music Theatre recently as well on musicals, which I also love. So it's doing everything. Don't turn anything down. Try and be as broad as you can. Don't say this is what I do. I only do this because you're going to really narrow yourself down. And if you want to write, I think that's the thing is, is the listening is crucial. Um, any music, but particularly the things you like, just try and deconstruct it. You know, what's going on here? What, how, how do I do it? Anecdotally, I, I could give you one anecdote, which for me was very important. I was about seven or eight with my first piano teacher and her husband worked at Reading University and they did a concert, Reading University Orchestra and Choir. And she went along to play timpani, to play kettle drums in this orchestra. She asked my mother if we'd like to go. Mum thought I was a bit young. But she'd take me. So it was just me and her. And we went to this Reading University concert in the Great Hall. And they did this work called Belshazzar's Feast by William Walton. Massive piece for huge choir and orchestra. And I absolutely was blown away at the age of seven or eight. I thought, this is incredible. This is what I want to do. But more than that, I thought, how did he do this? As a seven or eight-year-old, I was listening analytically and thinking, how on earth did somebody write all this down? And I went away and I tried to do it myself. Obviously, I couldn't at that age, but it's having that kind of sense of inquiry and, uh, you know, the ability to listen to what's going on around you. That's the thing I would say is most important of all. Yeah, I love that. You picked up an inquiring mind. You've got to have that intrigue. You've got to say, mm, that, oh, how did he do that? Like you said. Yeah. And is, is there any ways that because now we have the technology with apps on the computer and things like that, if somebody was getting off to start composing or to start to put... You know, even by sound rather than by visually writing the notes, is there some great apps that are available that can really help people get inspired and to get something produced? There are, and you're right. I mean, the great thing about it now is there's lots and lots of stuff you can do, and it, and it does shortcut it, which helps, and it does. It certainly means that more people can do it as well, which I think is is crucial. There's so much out there. Most people have got something. You know, so many kids on their phones or on their laptops had something even if they were not musical children as such um they could they could fiddle with it and if you are there's lots of there's lots and lots of good software so yes you have got far more opportunity to to experiment but i actually do think there are probably fewer people who can write down in the traditional way which is interesting yeah i think you're right there definitely because it's a learned skill you have to it's like times tables and calculators isn't it it is you know, it's great going to the calculator but how did it really arrive at that number you know and that's really what you got to do you got to get into the mechanics of the thing and be smart to 
continue to learn that, yeah? Well, somebody actually said a very interesting quote. They said, we're heading towards, with music, we're heading towards a, a more medieval system where only a very few people had the knowledge of how to do it. And by that, through education, obviously. And so you had scribes who could actually write things down and had the skills and the knowledge to do it. Everybody else just um, absorbed what they had done. And it's a bit like that now, although we have more access to get to the real nitty gritty of it, the people who could actually write something down that's complex, I think we've got fewer of them, uh, which we shouldn't have. I mean, we should we should be in a situation where a lot more people could do that. But I, again, I come back to the time thing. I don't think people have enough time to put in to get to that point. Uh, I think you're absolutely on the money there. And uh, it, it's not necessarily a bad thing, but it just becomes a bit more restrictive. You then have less people that can do it and therefore that will affect the availability and pricing and things like that ultimately that's yeah, the thing isn't absolutely it? yeah yeah, um, yeah. so uh, what i wanted to do just so the listeners know where you are uh, do you take on commissions currently and if you do how can anybody get a hold of you what's the best way of getting a hold of you i'd love to take on some commissions i haven't got any at the moment because i i, I retired from my teaching job almost exactly a year ago and of course we've been in this whole covid situation there hasn't been any music until this summer. You know, everything shut down. So all, whether it's local groups, choral societies or Amtram groups or, or just people that get together, even my band, we've done no gigs at all for 18 months. We're back into it now, this autumn. It's out there again. And so I'm hoping that uh, now there are going to be some opportunities to do a lot more music. I'm doing a lot more performing now, which is great. Oh, that's a relief, isn't it? You know, just getting back into communication with people, that's such an important part of human life. It isn't is. It, you know, if you wanted to get hold of me, uh, I have a Facebook page. I don't yet have a website. I had intended to set one up, but because of COVID, I haven't yet got around to doing that. That's not a problem. So if you can maybe mention your Facebook page, do you have the address for that? Or do we just look up Nick Goodall on Facebook? Just look up Nick Goodall. Yeah, it's um, it's fairly obvious, I think. I've got one final question before we end. And this is one that I always ask all my guests. And uh, it's a kind of $64 million question. If um. If you were 18 again, what would you tell yourself? That is interesting. I think if I was 18 again, um, I turned down a couple of opportunities. And it's quite interesting looking at the parallel career I've had and my cousins had. Uh, one of which was I didn't go for Oxford and Cambridge University. My head teacher was very, very keen for me to try. And I was adamant I wasn't going to do it. At the time, it didn't seem a cool thing to do. I wasn't interested. And I don't regret it particularly, but I think as an 18-year-old, I would now say have a go because it opens so many doors for him that have not been available to me. Uh, not to say that things would have been different. They may well have not have been, but that was one opportunity I deliberately didn't go for. Um, you know, it was a personal choice. And when I look back on it, I think maybe I wouldn't have got in, but at least I'd have known I hadn't got in. Whereas I've had to live my whole life thinking, what if, you know, it's, um, so that's a regret perhaps. And you're absolutely right. You don't know unless you try, there's nothing ventured, nothing gained. But of course that's the, you know, the virtue of being a bit older and looking back, you know, when you're young, yeah. you kind of don't realise that some of the obvious opportunities are right in front of you, but you just have to make sure you go left or right yeah. at that Y junction, isn't it? And you probably won't get it again either. That was, that was the other thing. You know, that was a one-off. And if you don't take it now, 
you can't go back again. Great advice. Nick, you know, it's been a real pleasure speaking with you. And, uh, you know, thanks for sharing the family story because that's always a great inspiration to people where some of these inspirations come from. It's, it's amazing going back in time. Have a great day. Look after yourself. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to On Another Track with me, David Wilson. My guest this week was Nick Goodall, helping you appreciate music in a way that you never thought possible. Remember, there are more conversations coming up in this series. Just look out for On Another Track with me, David Wilson, on your local podcast platform and subscribe. This has been a BritCam production for Urban Aspect Incorporated. Keeping us safe on the roads of North America. Thank you.